0: Hello. This is the 27th in the series of podcasts by the British Society for Hematology. And today's subject is a good practice paper on the use of next-generation sequencing in the diagnosis of congenital anemias. So this podcast is being recorded over Zoom due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so we apologize in advance for any sections that are not as clear as they otherwise could be. My name is Noemi Roy. I'm a consultant haematologist in Oxford, United Kingdom, and I work both seeing patients with rare inherited anemias, as well as on the diagnostic side. I'm looking after the laboratory side that does the next generation sequencing for inherited anemias. I'm also on the British Society for Hematology, General Hematology Task Force and I'm the Chair for the Guidelines Executive Committee at the European Hematology Association. I'm also the Rare Anemia Representative in the National Hemoglobinopathy Panel. I'm accompanied today by Roberta Russo. Roberta, would you like to introduce yourself, please?
1: Thank you, Noemi. My name is Roberta Russo, and I am an Assistant Professor of Medical Genetics at the Department of Molecular Medicine, and medical biotechnology of the University Federico II of Naples, Italy. And since uh, 2008, I work in the field of rare hereditary anemias within the medical genetics laboratory headed by Professor Achille Yolascon at the Institute Change Advanced Biotechnology in Naples. The laboratory is involved in both diagnostic and research activities on rare anemias. My research field of interest is genetics and genomics of red blood cell defects. I actively contributed to the identification of several positive genes of rare hereditary anemias. And since 2015, I'm dealing with the application of next-generation sequencing to the clinical and genetic definition of patients affected by these conditions. I conducted two projects as the principal investigator that aimed to identify the phenotype modifier genes responsible for improvement or worsening of the clinical phenotype of these patients. And currently, my major ambition is to explain the phenotype variability of among patients with these defects to significantly impact their management and to improve clinical decisions.
0: Thank you, Roberta. For our listeners, we're going to split this podcast into three parts. Firstly, we're going to talk about the rare anemias themselves. Secondly, we're going to move on to next generation sequencing. And then finally, we'll talk about how we interpret genetic variants and why it's so critical to do this carefully. So the first question is, what do we mean by rare inherited anemias, and do we include sickle cell and thalassemia, for example? But really, we're focusing, although we do include the hemoglobinopathies, we're focusing mostly on um, diamond blackfin anemia, congenital dyserythropoietic anemia, sidroblastic anemia, and then the red cell membrane and enzyme disorders. So We can look at those in terms of the anemias where the bone marrow is not working at all, like diamond-black van anemia, where there's no erythroid precursors whatsoever. We can look at those with ineffective erythropoiesis. So that would be congenital dyserythropoietic anemia, and there's lots of different subtypes, which we won't go into detail today. Sidroblastic anemia would be another example of ineffective erythropoiesis. And then we look at the congenital hemolytic anemias. So that would be the red cell membrane disorders. We could think about hereditary spherocytosis or pyropoikilocytosis, or we could think about the enzyme disorders like pyruvate kinase deficiency and G6PD deficiency. But I've just given the, the more common ones of these rare inherited anemias, but there's actually really quite a lot that are only a few cases have been described. So, in terms of how they present, the hemolytic anemias will present with typical hemolysis, which means jaundice, there would be anemia and reticulocytosis. We would expect the patient to perhaps develop gallstones, and the spleen is often enlarged. And for the other types of anemias, either they would be transfusion dependent or they might need some transfusions to get through at some point of their life, such as operations or during pregnancy. And the investigation of these anemias involves taking a good thorough history from the patient and their family, examining the patient, we're looking for splenomegaly or other um, physical changes that we would expect to see with some of these anemias. And then we do some blood tests. We look at the blood film, we look for hemolytic markers, And then we used to do lots of specialized tests, which what we want to get into now is to what extent do we still need to do these? And to what extent do we go straight for genetics? So now that we've gone through a very brief summary of these clinical aspects, Roberta, how about you remind us and our listeners about how specifically these were investigated in the past before we started using next generation sequencing?
1: Yes, Noemi. We have to remember that the conventional workflow for the diagnosis of these disorders is composed of three lines of investigation. It starts with evaluation of familial history, complete blood count, and peripheral blood smear. Then specialized biochemical tests are required as the second line of investigation. And finally, genetic testing, the third line of investigation, is used as a confirmatory test. In the past, genetic testing was performed using a gene-by-gene approach that is expensive and time-consuming with the subsequent delays in the iconosis. The advantages of using next-generation sequencing over single-gene testing, in addition to the cost-effectiveness, is that often clinical and laboratory features are not specific to a peculiar condition, And a large number of kind data genes might need to be analyzed before make a conclusive diagnosis. Moreover, a proportion of patients may present with overlapping phenotypes, and it has been shown that in 10% to 40% of cases, there is a degree of misdiagnosis or no diagnosis when this is based on phenotype on. Traditional non NGS testing. This can result in uh, incorrect or inadequate treatment with uh, subsequent uh, anxiety and adversely affect also the quality of life and potentially cost.
0: That's really important, Roberta, and really these numbers are quite high, isn't it? 10 to 40 percent that are getting either no diagnosis or the incorrect diagnosis. So it's really great that we can start to use uh, NGS or next generation sequencing and overcome these problems. Maybe we should actually go back and define what we mean by NGS, next generation sequencing. Can you do that for us, Roberta?
1: Sure, Noemi. The term Next Generation Sequencing, or NGS, refers to all types of high-throughput sequencing that provides a number of sequences three, four orders of magnitude greater than the traditional method. NGS includes different applications, targeted resequencing, whole exome sequencing, and whole genome sequencing. The whole exome sequencing refers to the analysis of whole coding regions of approximately 30,000 genes, including also the analysis of intron-exon boundaries for the identification of splice site mutations. The exome represents 1.5% of our genome, but it contains 80 to 19% of known disease-causing mutations. In all genome sequencing applications, coding and non-coding regions of all genes as well as intergenic regions are sequenced. Finally, targeted NGS refers to the sequencing of exons and splice site flanking regions of selected genes. Custom panels include variable numbers of genes that generally range from 20 to 200 with subsequent different diagnostic yields targeted NGS is the need for continuous updating of the gene list for each panel to include all recently identified causative genes. As many countries are currently moving towards carrying out all genetic analysis in the form of all exome sequencing or all genome sequencing, virtual panels will be increasingly used. Virtual panels consist of the analysis of only a subset of genes after whole exome or whole genome sequencing. In this case, instead of using the selected genes to guide the sample preparation and sequencing, they are used to design genomic coordinate-based filters applied during the data analysis stage. So, Noemi, I think it would also be helpful to talk about the whole process from when the sample is taken until the clinician can get a report back on the result.
0: Thank you, Roberta. I think you're right. And especially because our clinicians send off the sample and sometimes struggle to understand why it takes three months before they get a report. And certainly here in the UK, we have a three month turnaround time for this type of NGS testing. So let's look at what actually happens once the blood sample is taken. And of course, we should also mention consent because we're doing genetic testing. So it's important that the patient is consented for genetic testing because this will include things like potentially um, discovering non-paternity. And that's something that needs to be mentioned to the patient. So, once the blood sample has been taken and the consent has been um, signed, then the sample goes to the lab and the DNA is extracted. And even at this stage, there's a certain amount of quality control and quantitation of this DNA because we wouldn't want to put through a sample that we knew was likely to fail. If the sample passes that quality control, then the next step is what we call barcoding and library preparation. So you mentioned, Roberta, earlier that one of the advantages of NGS is that it's cost-efficient. And this is one of the reasons why it's so cost-efficient, because we're able to label each sample separately in terms of um, a little barcode, which is a short code of DNA that we attach on to to the sample, which means that we can then sequence maybe 30 to 50 patients together, we can pool all of that um, DNA together and do the sequencing all together. And that's where our cost effectiveness is. So the library is where you basically um, select each of the bits of DNA that um, you want to amplify for that patient according to the panel that you're testing. And not only can you pool 30 to 50 patients together into one sequencing reaction, but actually these patients can be Um, from mixed libraries. So you could have one patient who's having a rare anemia panel and another patient who's having an iron overload panel or a low platelet panel. So again, this is how we make this cost efficient. After the whole sequencing run, where all of your patients have been sequenced together in a single reaction, we have another quality control. And this is to control the quality of that run. And then within that quality control, we make sure that the quality of each individual sample is adequate for analysis. And any samples that haven't passed the quality control, we wouldn't analyze. All the samples that have passed the quality control then go on to read alignment. And this is where you're comparing the um, sequence for each individual bit of DNA compared to the reference sequence. So at this stage, we're, we're no longer looking at the pool of patients, We're looking at individual patient data. And that's because we've got those little barcodes we can pull out. Once you've aligned all the reads, you then have to do mutation calling. Um, I'm careful about the use of the word mutation. We should really be using the word variant. And that's because there will be lots and lots of variants between each individual and the reference sequence. And that's because we're all different individuals. And the vast majority of these differences will just be Things that make us different from each other. So what we w- want to do then is look at each of those variants and annotate them and filter them. What does this mean? Annotating them means we we kind of describe each variant. Would this cause a missense? Would it change? would, would the base change cause an amino acid change in the protein coding region? or would it cause a likely splice mutation, so does that mean that the variant is right at the intron exon boundary, or would this variant cause a frame shift or a stop codon? So all of that is the annotation. After the annotation is the filtering. So how do we do that? We compare the variants we found for each individual to what we find in um, large databases. So For example, if a variant is very common in the general population, we can immediately get rid of it. We know that it can't be the cause of a rare disease if it's found in 10% of the population. So the filtering is gonna put to one side all the variants we don't need to look at and only take through the variants we do need to look at. So if we go from all the variants identified to all the ones that have been annotated and filtered for each individual, for a panel we're, we're talking about, let's say 100 genes on the panel, Um, we'd probably be looking at, let's say, 5 to 10 variants per individual. Now comes the skill of the clinical scientists. It's time to look at each of these variants that have been filtered and decide by using guidelines, which you're going to go into, Roberta, decide if we think they're disease-causing or not. And then once we've got each of those variants um, with a sort of score for likeliness of being disease-causing, we have our multidisciplinary meeting. And that will involve clinicians and um, genetics experts, the clinical scientists. And we will have a discussion looking at the clinical phenotype and the variants identified. And once we decide what goes on the report, then the clinical scientist would write the report. And this is a good opportunity for me to remind people to fill out the request form with as much clinical detail as possible, because it's impossible to analyze genetic variants in the absence of good clinical information. We just can't do it. So I think now we're ready for part three, Roberta. I think it's time to get to the meat of the matter. Let's talk about variant interpretation. Can you take us through what happens in the lab when you get the list of variants back after sequencing and you start the analysis?
1: Yes, Noemi, as you explained, variant interpretation remains still the limiting step of NGS testing due to the overall complexity of the data analysis. Indeed, as you already mentioned, all variants identified after filtering need to be assessed for their pathogenicity, And this assessment currently is based on strict criteria established by the guidelines of the American College of Medical Genetics. Based on these guidelines, the pathogenicity of each variant is evaluated by gathering evidence from various sources. For example, population, computational, predictive, uh, functional data but most of all, phenotypic and segregation data. The American College of Medical Genetics System classifies genetic variants into five classes, benign, likely benign, pathogenic, likely pathogenic, and variants of uncertain or unknown significance. It is important to note that depending on the size of panel, A number of variants are always identified after all the filters are applied, even in normal subjects. For this reason, the most relevant aspect related to variant interpretation is uh, the correlation with the phenotype, I mean the clinical presentation of the patient. As you mentioned, once variants have been identified and graded for their pathogenicity, a multidisciplinary team meeting is carried out to discuss what variant uh, should be reported and generally the final report includes pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants related to the clinical suspicion as well as pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants in genes already associated with a phenotype, although different from the original sus- clinical suspicion. So that's what happens when things are pretty clear one way or another about pathogenicity, But the most important aspect is that in about 40% of cases, we just get variants of uncertain or unknown significance. So, Noemi, please, can you discuss this a bit?
0: Yes, Roberta, so let's focus on these. So you've called them um, the class three variants according to the ACMG guidelines, and they are also called variants of uncertain significance busses or BUSs. So these are all the the same thing. They are variants where we have as much information telling us they might be pathogenic as telling us they might not be pathogenic. And we have to be careful with these because we don't want to report them if they're not disease-causing, but we also don't want to ignore them if they might be interesting to follow up. These are the most difficult to analyze. Uh, but also potentially the most important and interesting ones. Because by trying to really dig down and find more information to help us determine if they're pathogenic or not pathogenic, we can widen our understanding of these genes and these proteins, and more importantly, increase our diagnostic yield as we go forward. It's really important that people understand this concept of class three variants, and it's you were mentioning that we would only include class four and class five variants in a report, but occasionally we will include class three variants if we think that something can be done to follow them up and to be able to get more information. And I think there's a certain amount of um, genomic education that's happening in the clinical field because the clinicians are receiving and reading these reports. And we don't want people to misinterpret what happens when we put a variant of uncertain significance on a report. We don't want people to misunderstand and think that this must be disease-causing. So one of the reasons for doing this podcast is to try to improve that understanding. So what do we do if we see a variant of uncertain significance? Well, sometimes we can do family studies. So if we know that a variant looks like it could be disease-causing, but we know that there's other affected members in the family, it can be helpful to get DNA from those members of the family. Because if we find affected individuals who don't have this variant or unaffected individuals who do have this variant, suddenly we know this variant can't be disease-causing. Sometimes we do family studies um, to look at what we call the segregation. So to see whether if we see two variants in an individual, we need to make sure that one comes from each parent. Because if both come from the same parent, then that can't be the the cause for the recessive disorder. But sometimes we also do research. So there'll be some specific functional studies. This might be um, like ectocytometry or EMA dye binding. Sometimes these are done before the genetics, but sometimes we can do them after and confirm whether the variants are disease-causing or not. And sometimes we need to do really complex um, basic science research if we want to determine whether a variant is disease-causing or not. So here I'm talking about maybe using CRISPR-Cas9 to introduce this variant in a cell line and see whether the phenotype develops. So it's important for people to realize what a variant of uncertain significance is and why we put it on the report and how sometimes we can quickly sort them out by doing some simple family studies, but other times it's a lengthy research project, which can take quite a few years. Isn't that right, Roberta?
1: Thank you, Noemi. I agree with you. I believe that variant of unknown significance uh, remains the most interesting and challenging and also exciting field in these uh, uh, in diagnostic and also in the research feed and uh, i believe we should probably wrap up now
0: Great, let's do that. So hopefully our listeners have um, felt that we've introduced this topic and that they will feel like reading the whole guideline. Um, So we've talked a little bit in the first part about the rare anemias themselves and the clinical and history and how they're investigated. We've given in the second part a little bit more detail about next-generation sequencing and what we mean by that and a bit around the logistics of how we do that. And finally, we've discussed one of the critical things about the variant interpretation and the variants of uncertain significance. Our good practice paper is actually the length of a full guideline, and that's because we've chosen to go into quite a lot of detail about the next generation sequencing so that people can really understand how it's done and how the interpretation is done. So we recommend that you you go and read it, but also uh, we are doing a presentation at the European Hematology Association uh, on this guideline because it's a joint um, British Society of Hematology and European Hematology Association paper and so we'll be presenting this on June 15th if people want to look at the details they are up on the EHA webpage and you can log in to this virtual session. A recording of the guideline discussion and presentation at the European Hematology Association will be available on the British Society of Hematology website and I thank everybody who's listened to the podcast today and I would encourage you to go to the BSH website and look at all of the varied and exciting podcasts you can listen there, thank you.